Well, take your copy of God's Word and open it with me this morning to the Gospel of John. And we are in John chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the first 16 verses. John chapter 5, beginning there in verse 1. Some of you may have noticed this antique clock on display when you came here today. Now, I do not know how old this clock is, but I do know that it belonged to my grandparents on my father's side. I know that they used this clock in their home to tell time. I know that years later, my parents used this clock to tell time. It has been in my family for a long time. It may have some value. It's pretty to look at, but there's one problem with this clock. It is broken. It is not 8.07 a.m. It is 11.29. And I believe I was a little boy the last time this clock actually worked the way it's supposed to. Now, you may wonder, if this clock doesn't work, Pastor, why are you holding on to it? That is an excellent question, and I'm sure my wife would love to know the answer to that question. Maybe one of these days I'll get it fixed, but not today. Well, I tell you this because this world is full of people who are just like that clock. On the outside, everything appears fine, but on the inside, they are broken. There are some people who are just broken by the circumstances of life. There are people who are broken by betrayal or abandonment. There are people who are broken by the choices they have made. Some people are broken by addiction. Some people are just brokenhearted. Years ago, there was a, a newspaper in Nashville, Tennessee that was going to write a story about brokenhearted people, and they actually contacted some of the pastors in the area, and they asked for names of people who were brokenhearted they could interview. One of those pastors wisely responded by mailing them a copy of the Nashville phone book. <laughs> in other words, who isn't brokenhearted? Who isn't broken at some point in their lives. Well, in our passage this morning, Jesus met a man who was broken in more ways than one. He was physically broken, and as we will see, even worse than that, he was spiritually broken by sin. Just like we saw last Sunday when Jesus healed the nobleman's son, Jesus comes into the picture, Jesus performed a miracle, Jesus changed this man's life. So if you're here this morning and you are broken, well, I have good news, there is hope for the broken in Christ. And as we read this story, there are three things that I want you to see, some lessons I hope that we will learn that point us to this hope that we have for broken people. First of all, I want us to see an example of our brokenness. There is in this story an example of our brokenness. Look at verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, 
which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. After this, John said, some amount of time has passed in between John chapter 4 and John chapter 5. We don't know how long, but the Bible says it was time for another Jewish feast. He doesn't tell us which one it was. But Jesus went up to Jerusalem to celebrate this feast. And notice he entered Jerusalem through one of the main entrances. It was called the Sheep Gate. Now, I want you to remember that because we're going to come back to that little detail at the end of the message. He came in through the sheep gate. At that gate, the Bible says there was a pool. Uh, archaeologists say we know exactly where that pool was located. Surrounding that pool, you had five porches so all of these people could sit in the shade beside that pool and wait. This pool called Bethesda, this is the place where you would go if you needed to remind yourself how good you had it. This is the place where you might go if you wanted to remind yourself that your problems weren't really that bad after all. Because around this pool of Bethesda, there were probably hundreds of broken people People with every sickness, every disease, every infirmity that you can imagine, all crowded into this one small place. Now, the text doesn't tell us, but I just imagine that many people, if not most people, coming into Jerusalem would do whatever they had to do to not pass through the Sheep Gate so they wouldn't have to pass by the Pool of Bethesda, so they would not have to see or smell or deal with those people. And if they did pass through, I can just see them looking straight ahead so they did not have to give them another thought but not Jesus. In fact, Jesus came from heaven to earth for broken people just like this. Isn't it interesting how he always had a way of putting himself where the most broken people were? Well, why were all of these broken people there? Because they believed that an angel stirred the water and the first one in was healed. Some of you may have if it's a newer translation, a note saying that that verse, verse 4, isn't in the earliest manuscripts. Either way, we get to verse 7, it's pretty clear that the people were there because that is what they expected to happen. And this leads us to one particular man in verse 5. Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity 38 years. We don't know this man's name. All we know is he had some kind of infirmity for 38 years. For 38 years, he could not stand. For 38 years, he could not walk. Later on in verse 14, Jesus seems to imply 
that his infirmity was due to some sin in his life. Now, listen to me carefully. We dare not assume that sickness is the result of personal sin, but in his case, it appears that it was. I saw something like this many years ago. A member of my family went to a party, got very drunk, dove headfirst into the shallow end of a swimming pool, and broke his neck, spent the last 10 years of his life a quadriplegic, couldn't move from the neck down, and just knowing that he was in that condition because of his own actions, because of his own choices, it made it even worse. It made it even harder, uh, a burden to bear. We don't know what this man did to be in that situation, but whatever it was, he had 38 years to think about it. Every day, same reality. You hear people say, time heals all wounds. No, it does not. Certainly not for this man. Here's a man who honestly believed that his only hope in life was to sit there by that pool day after day after day just staring at that water so that maybe if the water begins to stir he can jump in that water before everybody else and maybe if he's the first one in he can be healed what a sad life now this was a real story about a real man who it turns out was really healed but I believe we also see in this story a picture of our humanity. We see an example of our brokenness. And I want you to notice a few things. John says that there were many sick people there. The word he uses for sick literally means without strength. And it's interesting because the Apostle Paul actually used that same word to describe all of us before we were saved. In Romans 5, 6, he said, when we were without strength, Christ died for the ungodly. In other words, spiritually, we were just like this man. We did not have the strength to be able to help ourselves or to save ourselves. Notice John says some of the people around this pool were blind. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers. He says that many of the people around that pool were lame. They could not walk. The Bible says before knowing Christ, we walked in darkness. The Bible says that there were many there who were paralyzed. That word paralyzed literally means withered up dried up and it's the exact same word they would use in a time of drought when a river would completely dry up what a picture of so many people we see in the world around us today where there should be a river of life it's just dry it's dead there's no peace there's no hope there's no joy they're just broken now, if we will remember that that is who we were, that this was our reality, maybe, just maybe, we will see the broken people around us the way Jesus saw them. Maybe, just maybe, we will treat broken people with the same kind of compassion that Jesus had. 
Maybe instead of going out of our way to avoid broken people, we would go out of our way to find them. We see in this story an example of our brokenness. There's something else we see, and that is an acknowledgement of our helplessness. Look at verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Sounds like it was every man for himself and nobody caring about anybody else. Sounds a lot like our world today. But notice this question that Jesus asked him. Do you want to be made well? Now, is it just me, or if you're reading this story on the surface, maybe if you're reading it for the first time, is it just me, or does that sound like kind of a silly question to ask? I've been a pastor for 26 years. I don't think I have ever stood by someone's bedside in a hospital and asked them, do you want to be made well? Well, no, I actually enjoy sitting here by this pool all day, every day, just staring at the water, waiting for something to happen. Listen to me carefully. Jesus never asked a bad question. This is not like that time you were stranded on the side of the road, hood up, smoke coming out, somebody... You know where this is going, right? They, they pull over, they roll down the window. Is something wrong with your car? No. Sometimes I just like to pull over and stare at my engine for the fun of it. This wasn't that kind of question. When Jesus asked a question, he didn't ask it in order to obtain information. When Jesus asked a question, he asked it to make a point. Why did Jesus ask this man, do you want to be well? Because verse 6 tells us Jesus saw him and he knew that he had been in that condition for a long, long time. In other words, he was used to the way things were. He was used to the way things were. If that man were to be healed, he might lose out on his living, he might lose out on the charity that he would receive, he might have to get a job, he might have to take on responsibilities. I want to be careful how I say this, but some people, not all people, but there are some people who actually would prefer disability to work. And maybe this man just preferred things the way they were. So he asked him, do you want to be made well? Now, in a sense, it is the same way with salvation. Some people think of salvation, and of course, it's great. And then they realize that following Jesus is demanding. It means giving up some things 
turning from some things. It's going to cost us. It is worth it, but it's hard. And there are many people who are not saved simply because they prefer to stay on the mat, so to speak. They prefer things the way they are. So Jesus asked him, do you want to be well? And notice his response. He said, whenever I see a stirring of the water and I think maybe this is it, somebody else jumps in there before me and I lose my chance. And because I can't move, there's nothing I can do. Now, I want you to notice what this man's doing. He is acknowledging that he is unable to do what he thinks is the only thing possible that will bring him the healing that he desires. He's helpless. There is a phrase that you hear sometimes, sometimes perhaps we have used it, and it goes like this. God helps those who... You know there are a lot of people who say that and actually think that it's in the Bible. And they would be wrong. The Bible does not say God helps those who helps themselves. God helps those who cannot help themselves. And God helps those who are willing to acknowledge that they are hopeless and helpless and completely dependent upon the Lord. Now look at verse 8. Jesus said to him, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed, and walked. There is so much about this story that John doesn't tell us. I can't wait to get to heaven and ask questions. Did he jump? Did he dance? Did he shout? Did he make a scene? We don't know. The Bible does not tell us. What we know is that Jesus gave him three commands. Three commands. He said, rise, take up your bed, walk. All three of these, a complete impossibility for him. But the moment Jesus said it, all of a sudden, those muscles that had withered were not withered anymore. And all of a sudden, those bones in his body that were brittle were not brittle anymore. And notice when Jesus healed him, he uses the word in verse 9, immediately. He didn't gradually, he didn't partially heal him. We see this again and again in the scriptures. Jesus does it. He does it well. He does it right. He does it completely every single time. Now, there is a lesson here for us. Whatever God commands, God enables. Whatever God commands, no matter how difficult or impossible for us, whatever God commands, God enables. When he commands us to do something, he gives us the power and the ability to do it, but we must acknowledge our inability to do it on our own. There must be an acknowledgement of our helplessness before God. That's why Jesus said, blessed are the poor 
and spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There must be that acknowledgement, that, that poverty of spirit. Well, there's something else that we see in this passage, and that is the problem of our rebelliousness. If we're going to experience this hope for the broken, we need to see the problem of our rebelliousness. Now go back to verse 9. And that day was the Sabbath. The Jews, and John repeatedly in this gospel refers to the religious leaders, particularly by this title. The Jews, therefore, said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Jesus could have performed this miracle any day of the week, but Jesus performed it on the Sabbath. And guess what? Some people were not happy about that. You've heard it said, every party has a pooper, right? <laughs> Always going to be somebody. Doesn't matter how wonderful a thing just took place. There's always going to be a critic. Somebody's going to complain. This should have been a celebration. Jesus just performed a miracle. Here's a man who couldn't walk for 38 years. And the people are angry. They're angry. Why? Because he was carrying his bed. Some translations will say his mat. And he was carrying it on the Sabbath day. How dare he? They weren't just mad at him. Skip down to verse 8, or excuse me, verse 16. For this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. They were angry at the man for carrying his mat on the Sabbath. They were angry at Jesus for healing this man on the Sabbath. And John says they weren't just angry at Jesus. They were so angry at Jesus for healing this man on the Sabbath that he says, for this reason they sought to kill him. Now, when Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath day, this was kind of like a slap in the face to their whole religious system, and that is exactly why Jesus did it this way. Let me explain it like this. The man who was healed, did he deserve it? No. Did he do something to earn it? No. He just responded to the call of Jesus and received the gift that Jesus freely offered him. What's that called? That's called grace. That's called grace. Now compare that to these religious leaders who reduced salvation 
to nothing more than a list of rules. That's it. And you know what? Making matters worse, they added to the rules and said, if you want to be saved, you had better keep all of these rules. Of course, nobody ever did. Nobody ever could. But that didn't keep them from imposing these rules on the people. It was all about the rules. And this is a perfect example right here in John chapter 5. If you read the Ten Commandments and you get to the fourth commandment, ladies and gentlemen, it is not complicated. It says, you shall labor six days and rest one. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. That's it. God loves us. He knows what is good for us. He knows that we need that day of the week. He knows that we can get more done if we work six days and rest one than we can if we work seven days and never rest, which is what some people do. He gave us this command, and it was meant to be a blessing, but they took that blessing and they turned it into a burden. And here's what they did. They just added a jillion rules to the fourth commandment. They said, if you're going to keep and obey the fourth commandment, this is what it looks like. Here are some rules. They had 39 categories of Sabbath rules. I did not say 39 rules. 39 categories of Sabbath rules that they said you had to keep. They had rules about how many steps you were allowed to take on the Sabbath. So just imagine you trying to keep count of how many steps you took on the Sabbath day. They had rules about what kinds of knots you were allowed to tie on the Sabbath. You were allowed to tie some kinds of knots, but other knots, if you tied that knot, that would be a sin because they said that would be working on the Sabbath. They had rules about when and where you could spit on the Sabbath. They had a rule that said if you looked in the mirror on the Sabbath day and you saw a gray hair, you could not pluck it out because that would be working on the Sabbath. And there was even a debate, a great big debate amongst the rabbis of that time. They would argue, if a man has a wooden leg and his house catches on fire on the Sabbath day, can he carry his wooden leg while he is hopping to safety? Ladies and gentlemen, I am not making this up. They had all of these rules. It was all about the rules. And one of those rules was, you are not allowed to carry your mat on the Sabbath. So what did Jesus do? He intentionally healed that man on the Sabbath and told him to carry his mat on the Sabbath. Why? So that he could expose their system so he could expose the futility of their works righteousness so that he could expose the futility of their attempts to save themselves by keeping a bunch of rules. And there are a lot of people even today who think 
that salvation is nothing more than just keeping a bunch of rules. They spell gospel D-O. Do this. Do that. And if you do the things on our list of rules, maybe if you do them often enough, maybe you'll get to go to heaven. Ladies and gentlemen, it doesn't work that way. That's a lie from the pit of hell. The gospel is not spelled D-O. It is spelled D-O-N-E, done. It is done because Jesus already did everything that is necessary through his death, his burial, his resurrection, and there is nothing for us to do to add to what he has already done. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace we are saved through faith. And at the end of verse 9, he says, get this, Not of works lest any man should, what? Boast. You realize if our salvation were just partly due to our works, that means we would have something to boast about when we get to heaven. Salvation is not by works, so that when we get to heaven, we will not boast in ourselves, but in Christ. We are saved by grace through faith, so that God alone gets the glory and not man. Now this leads to a question. Why is it that there are so many people, some who even call themselves Christians, Why are there so many people who try to earn their salvation by keeping a list of rules when God offers it to them for free? Why is that? And the reason why man will insist on trying to save himself is because he refuses to give God the glory for doing it for him. The real problem is pride and rebelliousness in the human heart. Man would rather try to keep a list of laws that he cannot keep. He would rather try in vain to earn his salvation by keeping a list of rules rather than just admit that he's a sinner, that he's broken, he's helpless, and that he cannot save himself. That's the problem. It's pride. Go back to verse 14. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Until this point in the story, he still did not know that Jesus was the one who had healed him. But then Jesus saw him in the temple. That's a good sign. He went to him. He revealed himself to him. And he makes a very interesting statement. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. Now understand, when Jesus said to him, sin no more, That does not mean that he would never again commit another sin in his life. The same John who wrote the Gospel of John said in 1 John chapter 1, if any man says that he has no sin, he is a liar, he deceives himself, and the truth is not in 
him. When Jesus said to him, sin no more, it's because Jesus was calling him out of a life of sin, and he was calling him to new life in Christ. We don't know the exact moment when this person was saved. The Bible just does not tell us. But again, what the Bible does tell us, what Jesus told him, what he needed to know, is that there was something actually worse than being lame for 38 years. And you know what? That in itself is a pretty bad thing. The thought of going almost four decades and you can't stand, you can't run, you can't walk. You say, Pastor, what could be worse than that? Being lost without Jesus is worse than that. Hell is worse than that. Eternity separated from God is worse than that. And so Jesus healed this man's body because he wanted him to know and he wants us to know that he can do more than that. He not only healed him physically, but he wanted to save him spiritually. And there's this beautiful detail in the text. I told you we would come back to this before I close. At the very beginning of the story, I want you to notice Jesus entered Jerusalem through the sheep gate. It was called the sheep gate because that was the place where all of the lambs would come in, where they would be led as they were heading to the temple to be sacrificed. Jesus came in through that gate, the sheep gate, the gate of sacrifice. And where is he going? He goes to a pool called Bethesda. And what does that mean? It means place of mercy. Are you getting the picture here? 2,000 years ago, Jesus passed through the gate of sacrifice. He went to the cross for you and for me, where he laid down his life for your sin and mine. He passed through that gate, the gate of sacrifice, so that we could meet him at the place of mercy. And now we can have forgiveness. And we can have salvation. And we can have healing. And we can have restoration. And we can swim in the pools of God's mercy every day of our lives. Heavenly Father, how we thank you that you sent Jesus 2,000 years ago, that he passed through the gate of sacrifice to meet that man at the place of mercy. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus did for each and every one of us. We've been reminded this morning that the world is full of broken people. God, help us to see them the way Jesus did. Help us to have the same compassion 
for broken people that Jesus had. Help us to love them and to reach out and to help them and to bless them. Help us to remember that spiritually that was us. We were there. And Father, we pray if there's anyone here today who perhaps clinging in vain to work salvation, if they came here today thinking that they could save themselves by keeping a bunch of laws, a list of rules, Father, help them to see their own helplessness before you. Your word says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all lawbreakers and the wages of sin is death. So would you help that person to recognize their inability to save themselves, help them to acknowledge their own brokenness and their helplessness and their inability to save themselves by keeping the law that they would come to you and that on this day, Lord, they would simply receive this gift that Jesus offers, this gift of eternal life from the one who died on the cross and was buried and rose again. Father, move, we pray, in our midst this morning. Speak to every one of us. Show us how all of this applies to our lives, how we need to respond to all of this this morning. And we give you all of the thanks and we give you all of the praise in Jesus' name.